we sell a book in our bookstore, and we've joked about the title of the book before. I don't know if you remember or heard of the book. It's a small book, but the title is How to Walk Into Church. You're thinking, how long a book can that be? (laughs) Weren't you supposed to learn that when you were about two, one foot in front of the other? That's how you walk into church. It's a good little booklet because what it's really talking about when it calls itself how to walk into church is what is this important thing that we're doing every Sunday morning. And like every other important thing that you do in your life, you should be thoughtful and thinking about what you're going to say, how you're going to behave, how you're going to dress. Anytime you have something that's really important, Maybe you're going to a wedding. Maybe you're going to a funeral. Maybe you're going into a job interview. Maybe you're going to meet someone famous. Maybe you're going to meet someone that you love and have a lot of respect for. Anytime you're doing something important, most likely you've been taught to think first about what you're going to do, how you're going to look. How you're going to behave, what you're going to say, and you're conscious of that. Well, we've said this before, there are not many things that we do in life that are more important than getting together with God's family and worshiping Him corporately every single Sunday. So I bring that up because in chapter 5, of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has some very practical things to tell us to consider when we go to God, when we go to meet with God. This isn't the only place that you meet with God, hopefully, but it is a place that you go and meet with God. So he has something important that's overarching that he's going to tell us, and then he'll get practical, very practical, especially in how we use or don't use our mouths. I think it'll be helpful. Before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. So will you please bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, we come to you by the Holy Spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus, and ask for your help today. Help me to speak well, to say things that are true and from you, from your word. Help all of us to understand and help us to apply your word. If this is your word for our life, then we want to understand it. We want to be changed by it and apply it. So help us in this, we pray. Help us to move forward a few steps in our relationship with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you're using one of our church Bibles, which if you don't own a Bible, you're free to take that one with you. You'll find it 
under a seat in front of you. If you're using one of those Bibles, you'll find today's text on page 357. So we've finished four chapters now in this book of Ecclesiastes. So let's make sure that we are tracking with the professor. That's what the author, King Solomon, calls himself, the preacher or the professor. Let's make sure that we're tracking with him through four chapters. Here is the driving message of the book. And I try to say this every week, say it in different ways, but it's the same message so that it sinks deeply into our hearts and minds. The driving message of the book of Ecclesiastes is all of life is vanity, yet God enables his people to enjoy it. That is the driving message of this book. It is that all of life, look around, you know this, all of life is vanity and yet God enables His people to enjoy it. That is true. All of life is vanity. It is, he says, full of weariness. Life is hard. Life is full of sorrow. And so honest and deep and lasting joy is hard to come by. And yet, God enables His people, His children, those who please Him to enjoy this life. That is the driving message. How? How is that possible? If life is vanity, then how can you enjoy it? If life is vanity, how can I enjoy it? So what have we learned? Two things so far. Number one, joy is a gift from God to a believer. It's not a thing you could just go secure yourself. It's not a thing you can just grasp at. If you do, you're chasing, Solomon says, wind. So we have learned that joy is a gift from God to a believer. The power to enjoy this life is a gift of God to a Christian. In other words, you need to be a Christian to truly enjoy this life. That's quite a thing to say. Solomon, that is, that's quite a thing to say. You need to be a Christian to truly enjoy this life. And people might think, that's not true. I've seen lots of people who aren't Christians and they're happy. I've seen lots of people who aren't Christians and they're joyful. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a believer and I'm proof that that is not true because though I'm not a Christian, I have true joy. I have true happiness. You might even get angry about it and not sound very joyful anymore. 
But this is what I think the Bible would say to that, because that's something, right? I mean, you see that, and it's not like everyone who's not a Christian is walking around with their head down and miserable. So I I think the Bible speaks to that, and I I think what the Bible is, is saying is this. Whatever that is, that that euphoric experience, that happiness, that joy that someone who's not a Christian claims to have or looks like they have. It's not what God is talking about. It, it is not true joy. It's not deep. It's superficial. It's not lasting. It's temporal. The longest it could possibly last is to the day of your death. So it's temporal. It's, it's fleeting. It's superficial and it's not honest it it can't hold all the realities in this life and be joyful at the same time it can't it can't hold the reality of who you know you are and what you know you've done it it can't hold the reality of what you see on the news and, and see happening around you in your neighborhood and in your workplace it can't hold all that and and be truly deeply lastingly joyful at the same time. So it's something, but it's not this true joy. And give it the right circumstance and it's gone. It's a house of cards. Maybe you've been through some things and you think that happiness is still there and that joy is still there. Give it the right circumstance and that joy is gone. Give it death, and I guarantee that joy is gone. A Christian joy is indomitable. It's inconquerable. You can put it in the ring with anything, and it's not getting beat. And that kind of joy is a gift of God to a believer. Chapter 2, verse 26. For to the one who pleases him... God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. So go to God. Please God. Believe the gospel. Stop going your own way and go God's way. Stop going to yourself and go to God. Because enjoyment of this life and enjoyment in this life is for believers and it is for believers alone. That's what Solomon has said. Second thing is that we have learned that joy is rooted in an understanding of the exhaustive sovereignty of God. So number one, joy is a gift of God to a believer. And number two, we have learned that joy is it's rooted in, it's built on, its foundation is an understanding of the sovereignty of God. This is what Solomon learned. And then he passed it along to us in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. He came to understand that everything is a part of God's plan and God's plan is good. Everything is a part of God's plan and God's plan is good. 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And his point was, and it's all set by God. And then in 3 verse 11, he has made, his plan is good, and he has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything according to God's plan. So that answers the how. 
How do I enjoy this vain life? And by the way, as a side note, we'll talk in a couple weeks about why it is so important that we actually enjoy the life God has given us. Why it's crucial that you set your mind and heart on enjoying God and enjoying the life that God has given you. But he's answered it for us. How do we enjoy this vain life? You need to believe the gospel and understand the sovereignty of God. You need to be a believer. You need to receive this gift of joy from God. And then you need to grow in your understanding of his greatness. You need to know that God is good and that God is great. You need to cement your feet into the goodness and the greatness of God. To accept and not just accept, but rejoice in the life, or Solomon calls it the lot, that God has given each of you. So if you grasp all that, congratulations. Because you, you've, you've made it through four chapters. You're tracking with Solomon, who is, don't forget, the wisest man ever to walk the face of the earth. So that's going to bring us to chapter 5. We're going to follow King Solomon into chapter 5. And here is where he's taken us. We're always thinking and talking about where we're going. Here is where Solomon is taking us. Okay. You can't find enjoyment apart from God. So this may seem like a no-brainer to you. So go to God. You can't find enjoyment in this life apart from God. So go to God. Approach God. Worship God. Draw near to God. Meet with God. That's where Solomon is sending you in the next seven verses. So let me show you that real quick in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. See, it's right there. Go to the house of God. Go to the house of God. That is where Solomon is sending you next in chapter 5. You need to go to God. So in the Bible, the house of God refers to any place where God is. Let me give you some examples. It refers to any place where God reveals himself. For example, in Genesis 28, Jacob is wrestling with God and he passes out, which is, of course, what you would do if you were wrestling God. And when he wakes up, when he wakes up, he calls the place where he wrestled God the house of God. And he called it the house of God because God's presence was there. While the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness. They, they, they built this tent, the tent of meeting. They built this movable tabernacle. And that tabernacle was called the house of God in Exodus twenty three nineteen. 
And the reason it was called the house of the Lord your God was because God's glory and presence dwelt there. So the house of God is where God is. Later, King Solomon, who wrote this book, he had the first permanent tabernacle built, which was called the temple, and it was also called the house of God. That temple was destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed again. And now, today, according to the New Testament, in places like 1 Corinthians 3.16, you, if you're a Christian, you are a sort of temple. And you are a sort of temple because God's Holy Spirit dwells in you. So put that all together because we have this phrase, house of God. Put that all together. The house of God is wherever you find God. Now, by the grace of God, by the grace of God, you, Christian, can find him anywhere and everywhere throughout the week. You can draw near to God. You can approach God. You can meet with God. You can worship God. You can go to God anywhere and everywhere throughout the week. Because the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, dwells within you. Now, there was a day, and you read about this in the Old Testament, where no one goes into the presence of God. No one goes near God. You got close to Him. You drew near to Him. You worshipped Him. You met with Him by going around the outside of this tabernacle or this temple. And inside that were two rooms. And not just anybody could go in the outer room. And only one person could go in the inner room and only one time a year. And that is where the presence of God was. That's where the glory of God was. And between that inner room and that outer room, which was in that building, separated from a court that was surrounded by a fence, separated from the people, between that very inner room and the outer room was this big curtain. And that big curtain symbolized the distance between God and His people. You can't just access God. You can't just approach God. You can't just meet with God. You can't just go to God. What would happen if you went past that curtain? You'd die. You'd die. In fact, if you were going to meet with God behind that curtain, they tied a rope around your ankle to drag you out. If you went in there wrong. Now, here's one of the most amazing things that happened when Jesus died. And it was symbolic. When Jesus died, you can read about this in the account of the Gospels. All kinds of crazy things happened. Earthquakes and darkness. And one of the things that happened is is in that temple. That curtain just spontaneously, coincidentally, 
with no one there, ripped in half. Just ripped in half. Why? Well, Christian, you know the gospel. And if you're here, let me tell you the gospel. It is that Jesus Christ came. He lived. He suffered and died in the place of sinners so that sinners could be reconciled to God. So when Jesus died, that curtain ripped in two, symbolizing that people were reconciled to God. So you and I can go to God. We can meet with God. I don't need a priest. We can go directly to God. Now you go to God personally. I hope. There's something significant and specific that Solomon is talking about when he says go to the house of God. He probably has in mind specifically as they did in that day going to his temple. But you also not only is God's presence is with you always and you're always with God in that sense. There, there are and should be formal times where all of you go to God. I hope you go to God personally. For me, that's in the morning. Just about every morning. If I don't do it in the morning, it doesn't go well for me. I miss it, but I do miss it sometimes. But you go to God personally and you meet with him. He has for 10, 15, 30 minutes. He has your, I hope, your undivided attention. It's just you and God. And you probably open up the Bible and you read something so that he's talking to you. And you probably bow your head and pray so that you're talking to him. Maybe you sing a song. Maybe you read a book that fills your mind with good truth about God. You worship him. What are you doing? You're approaching God. You're meeting with God. You're going to God. And every Christian should do that on a regular basis. If you have a family, I hope you go to God with your family. You don't want to disconnect there, right? Especially if you have kids. You don't want your kids to see that, you know, you and God is just a personal thing. It's just something that you do on your own and it's sort of apart from them and compartmentalized. So you go to God with your family. If you have a husband or wife, you go to God with your husband or wife. If you have kids, you go to God with your kids. And hopefully you do that regularly. Our family reads the Bible at least once a week together. We sing at least once a week together. And we try to pray every night together. Not only do you go to God personally. Not only do you go to God as a family. You go to God as a church family. Now what are we doing right now? We're going to God as a church family. And there's something special. About God's people coming together. About people coming together, individuals coming together, families coming together with other individuals and other families as brothers and sisters and going to God. Let me read you a scripture from Ephesians chapter two. If you want to turn there, turn there with me. There's 
Now, I already read 1 Corinthians 3.16 that tells us, do you yourselves not know that you are God's temple and God lives in you? That's each of you as individual Christians. You're a temple and God's spirit dwells in you. But now listen to what this tells us about a temple. This is in Ephesians 2, verse 18 and following. For through him, that's Christ. Through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members, Christians, members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So he's saying as a church, we're like a building. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows, this is every Christian now, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You get what that's saying? You're a temple and we're a temple. God's Spirit dwells in you, God's presence is in you, and God's presence is in us when we come together as a temple to meet with God, to worship God. What are we doing every Sunday? We are going to God. We're doing what Solomon is telling us to do. We're not here, I hope, to be entertained. We're we're not here merely for ourselves. We're not here merely for others. We're here for God. We're here to meet with God. So we go to God. And then look at this. Back to verse 1. What did Solomon say about how we go to God? Verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, what does he mean? He's saying, hey, I know your church has some sketchy stairs out front and more than one person has fallen and gotten hurt. We got insurance claims. Just be careful. That's obviously not what he's talking about when he says guard your steps. He's saying when you go to meet with God, you go carefully. Go carefully. Consider the magnitude of what you're doing. You got personal devotion time. You got family worship. You're coming here on Sunday. He's saying guard your steps. Think about what you are doing. Consider the magnitude of it. Don't go to God, whether it's your quiet time, whether it's singing songs with your family, whether it's driving here on a Sunday morning. He's saying, don't do that carelessly. Don't do that flippantly. Don't do that unprepared. Think about it. Guard your steps. So let's keep reading. Let's pick it up in the rest of verse 1. Let's read through all these verses to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. 
For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So he's talking about going to God. And take those different contexts that we talked about, whether it's your personal devotional time, whether it's worship with your family, whether it's corporate worship with God's family on a Sunday morning. And I wanted us to read the entire text so that you could see where Solomon ends up. Because he ends up with some direction that will be an overarching instruction throughout the entire book. And it shows up here for the first time. He's giving us an instruction here about how we go to God. And it is going to be an overarching direction for the entire book. It's at the very end of verse 7. The very end of verse 7. Look with me again. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but... God is the one you must fear. Friends, here's what he's saying. Go to God fearfully. That summarizes the six verses before. Go to God, he says. How do I go to God? Go to God fearfully. He's going to keep that theme the entire book. If you want, you could flip with me to chapter 12, verse 13. Let me read it to you. This is the second to last verse in the book. So I want you to see how this is an overarching direction here. The second to last verse of the book says in chapter 12, verse 13, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of of man. Does that sound overarching to you? Does that sound all-encompassing to you? Sounds like, hey, whatever you do, whatever commands you follow, whatever instructions you listen to, they all fit inside this one. You need to fear God. And back up to our verse. Go to God. And when you go to God, go fearfully. Meet with God Fearfully. Approach God fearfully. Worship God fearfully. Do you want to enjoy this life? You better fear God. Now, a lot of Christians, in my experience, don't know what that means. To fear God, to go to him fearfully. In fact, in November of 2016, some of you were here. We did a sermon series on the fear of God. And we did a sermon series that was prompted by my son, Brady, asking me at the dinner table, what does it mean to fear God? And I just gave him a totally lame answer. 
And it was so lame that we ended up doing a sermon series on it because I realized that I didn't understand as well as I should what it means to fear God. I mean, it's all over the Bible. Fear God, fear God, fear the Lord. But do we know what that means? Do we know what Solomon is talking about when he tells us to go to God fearfully? And he's going to say it over and over again. So I think this will be helpful. Let let me summarize the main content of that sermon series and make sure that we understand the fear of God as we head into Solomon's practical instruction. Because this is going to be with us for the rest of Ecclesiastes. He's going to say, hey, the good life is fearing God. You want to enjoy this vain life? You've got to fear God. So we need to understand what he means. So let's get a biblical perspective. So first, there was a day when you did not fear God. The human beings by nature do not fear God. Human beings by nature are not interested in God. They are not concerned with God. They deny God. They hate God. You, at one time, Romans 8, 7 says, were hostile to God. And you did not want to submit to him. And you did not want to submit to God because he was, to say it lightly, unsupportive of your self-centered life. So no thanks. So there was a day when you did not fear God. Psalm 10, 4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. Then one day, if you're a Christian, then one day, by God's grace, you faced your soul in the mirror And you couldn't escape what you saw. You couldn't unsee it. You were a sinner. You were one of the bad guys. And you realized that you were dishonoring God from the inside out. You saw this in light of God's holiness. The difference between him and you. You saw your sins against all his perfections. You saw your wrong against his right. And when you did, you feared God. You feared his judgment. And you feared his wrath. You felt or you experienced Job 37, 24, which says the almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him because they know that they're not righteous. So there came a day when you feared God and you feared his judgment and you feared his wrath. Now, many people go there and they still don't make it to God because they start trying to do things to appease God and somehow balance the scale so there's more good than bad. And that's a fruitless endeavor. And it's impossible. But for you, Christian, God's work in you is not done. And by his grace, you came to know his forgiveness. And his forgiveness put another kind of fear in you. 
Psalm 130 verse 4 says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So you've got fear because of judgment and wrath. And then that's an interesting thing that we're told in Psalm 130. There also is a fear that's the result of knowing the forgiveness of God. You came to know that the God who stood ready to judge was willing to save you. You came to know that the lion would rather punish, pardon you than punish you. You came to know his mercy. And when you came to know his mercy, the fear of God became another kind of fear, a fear that drove you to God and not away from God. You came to know his forgiveness and a new fear drove you to God instead of away from God. And you, Christian, have been fearing God ever since. So your fear of God today, it is not like those early days when you first faced truth, when you were terrified like a criminal before an executioner. But now it is a deep reverence that leads to a desire to please God in all things. That is the Christian's fear of God. It is a deep reverence of God, knowing who He is and how holy He is and how dangerous He is, and yet He has forgiven me. So you're like a child before His loving Father. Reverently. A child before his loving father looking to please the one who is his ultimate source of love and security. That's what it means to fear God. God is your father. He is a powerful father. And you have a deep reverence for him, so much so that you desire to obey him and please him in all things. Solomon is saying, keep that in mind and guard your steps when you go to God. Fear God in this way when you approach him. That is how we should meet with God. Fearfully, not casually, not casually. Ask yourself, how do you meet with God? How do you meet with God? Are you relaxed? Are you unconcerned? Is that what summarizes your approach to God? Or do you come to him with reverence? Do you have a t-shirt that says something dumb like Jesus is my homeboy? Do you not prepare for worship on a Sunday morning? Is this day no different than any other day for you? And I don't know how that works out for you. But I hope I think you I hope you think about the clothes you wear. I hope you think about what you do with yourself. I hope you think about what you think about the night before and the morning before. 
I hope you consider your words carefully. As Solomon's going to talk about. I hope you prepare for meeting with God, whether it's personally or with your family or with your church family. I hope you prepare for that at least as much as you prepare for anything else important in your life. But we can get so casual with this and we can get so flippant with this. Whether it's your devotional time, or your family worship time, or your church time, we just roll out of bed and roll into it. Is that going to God fearfully? So that's the most important thing that we needed to grasp here. But I want to read through the rest of these verses because what he's doing in these other six verses is he's giving us some practical help. And here's what's really interesting, I think. This was written 3,000 years ago. Okay, There is nothing new under the sun because the problems then are the problems now. Like these are my problems when I go to God and these are your problems when you go to God. But I'm thankful he gets really practical And if you want to put a New Testament verse over this, it'd be James 1, I think it's 19. Christian, be quick. You know the verse, right? Be quick to talk and slow to listen. Is that what it says? That's how most of us live though, right? Quick to, right? You you speak and then you think about it. What did I just say? That's backwards. Ready, fire, aim. That's backwards. That's not how you should shoot from the mouth. So if you want to put a New Testament verse over this, a New Testament theme, it's be quick to listen. It's slow to speak. You heard it before, I'm sure, when we were reading through it, but let's look at them again. First three verses. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Let not your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Walter Kaiser says about these verses. The teacher's strong advice for us above all else is to go to the house of God. But we are to go with a receptive attitude and a readiness to listen rather than lecture God on what he ought to do or how things should be run. What does it mean to go to God fearfully? It means to listen. It means to listen. Of course that means that you're Actual mouth may need to be constrained. You need to say less. But you and I know that it's also possible to not be saying any words and to have a hard heart that's not interested in listening. So we're talking about our heart first and foremost. A willingness to hear. A willingness to listen. What do you do when you're sitting on your couch or in your chair or in your car or in your office and you open up the Bible? You should be listening to God. How does God speak to me? That is how God speaks to you. He speaks to you through his word. But when you open it and read it, are you receptive? Are you listening? Are you hearing what he has to say? 
when you're reading the Bible, when you're listening to a sermon, if it's a good sermon, are you quick to push back? Are you quick to argue? Are you quick to disagree? Maybe you're not the one who comes up after service and disagrees with me to my face, but maybe, maybe that's what's going on in your heart. And maybe it's something that I said that isn't right, but maybe, just maybe, it's something God says that you don't like. And so there's no humility there. And there's pushing back and there's arguing and there's excuse making. But we're called here to hear God's word. He gives us some helpful principles like when you come to church on a Sunday. He says, let your words be few. Let your words be few. Listen, some of you just need to talk less. I don't mean that humorously. You just you need to talk less. You talk too much. And you're talking so much that you're not you're not listening. You're not listening to what God has to say to you. You're not even taking a breath to to think about his his words to you. I think something that can be in mind here that Jesus brings up in the New Testament is 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 when we pray or when we actually talk to God, our words tend not to be few. When I preach, my words tend not to be few. We tend to be long-winded as if God was like, when you pray, like He highlights all your words and clicks on word count and sees how many words. Well, wow, that's like 15,000 word prayer. That's not how God measures it. God is not impressed with a word count. Many are guilty of what Derek Kidner calls verbal doodling. It's thoughtless mindless, careless, talking to God. Is that guarding your steps? Is that going to God with an attitude to hear and an attitude to listen? Is it being thoughtful? Let me read you three Proverbs about this. Proverbs ten nineteen: When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. You know what that's like in a conversation with somebody else where you or the other person is just, we're just taking turns talking. We're just missing. We're not really thinking about what the person is saying. We're not really listening to what they're saying. We're just, while they're talking, we see their mouth moving. We kind of hear words, but we're thinking about what we're going to say next. And as soon as, and we're just waiting. And as soon as they stop or take a breath, we're off to talking. Well, some of us do that with God. We do that with God. Some of you are afraid to read his words. Some of you are afraid to just be quiet and stop listening to everything else because you're afraid of the truth that's going to face you. You're fearful of being confronted by the word of God. But the wise person takes pleasure in understanding or Proverbs 21, 23, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. This is 3,000 years ago. Is this not a problem still? Problem for me. Consider what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 7. I'm still shocked Jesus said this. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. 
And then he actually teaches us how to pray. And the prayer is actually very short. I'm not saying it's a sin to pray long. Jesus prayed at least once. He prayed all night long. We're called in Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. That's not the point. The point is being careful with your words, being thoughtful with your words, composing your thoughts, considering what you say, and then saying it. Job said in chapter 40, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? That's a good attitude. I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. And John Bunyan wrote, in prayer, it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. Be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. Verses four through seven. What is this talking about? Similar theme. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let me pause before I read the rest of those verses. A vow is a promise. A vow is an oath. A vow is a commitment. And you know there are varying levels of commitments that you can make. And vows that you can take. And promises that you can make. He's telling us to be careful with this. This is part of how you go to God fearfully. Verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. The messenger is a witness. It could be a friend. It could be a pastor. It could be a parent. It could be a child. It's someone who heard you make the vow. And then they come to you and said, hey, remember that vow? And you say, it was a mistake. I didn't really mean it. Why should God be angry? This is what could happen. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? That sounds serious. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This could be a physical commitment that you make, could be spiritual, could be financial. These vows that you might make or be tempted to make, these commitments that you might make are not required by God. There's no place in Scripture that requires that Christians take certain vows or that Christians make certain commitments. It can be a good thing, though. And here's the thing. We often do it. But we might do it flippantly. We might do it carelessly. Anyone who's ever been to a youth group summer camp knows what I'm talking about. You know what happens at the end of the summer camp. You know what happens at the end. Every single one makes a what? A commitment. And often you can't find them a month later. We're trying to extract these commitments out of one another. 
trying to extract these vows out of one another. I think the temptation is this. We think that God will be satisfied with our intentions. You ever made a commitment? God, I prom- I'm never going to do this again. I promise not to do this. I promise to change this in my life. I'm not going back there. I'm not going to think like this again. Never again. I'm making a vow to you, God. I'm making a commitment to you. And what, how do you feel right after you do that? You feel great, don't you? You feel like you did something really good. Here's the thing. You didn't do anything. You didn't do anything. Those are just words. Now, if that turns out to be a real commitment, this is what Solomon's talking about. If that turns out to be a real commitment, praise God. But if not, you never should have run your mouth. Slow down. Fear God. Don't be flippant about this. Don't be careless about this. If you're going to make a vow, if you're going to make a commitment, be thoughtful about it. If you're going to make a commitment, He's saying, make sure you fulfill it. It's a big deal. This goes back to letting your words be few, maybe. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21 is a, parallel, a cross-reference. talks about the same thing. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But... If you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. Sounds like a pretty good deal. If you you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sins. If everyone else is doing it, be careful, slow down, consider. You should be careful to do what has passed your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So apparently this was a problem then. It can be a problem now. Proverbs twenty twenty five. It is a snare to say rashly it is holy and to reflect only after making vows. What did I just do? What did I just get myself into? What did I just commit to? Don't think, oh, it's no big deal. Don't think, well, God knows that I wasn't thinking clearly. God knows that that's not even possible. That's not going to God fearfully. That's no reverence. That's no honor. That's no respect. One author wrote, Fools love thoughtless vows. Talking about what you will do is a good, low-cost way to enhance your reputation down at the church. So we're tempted to talk a talk. And Solomon says that is not going to God fearfully. So in conclusion, two questions to consider. Number one, are you going to God? Verse one, As Solomon makes this transition, he clearly expects that we're going to be meeting with God. We're going to be approaching God. We're going to be going to God. There's no enjoyment of this life apart from him. 
And he just got through telling us how sovereign God is, how mighty he is, and how great God is. So he's saying, when you go to God, make sure you go to him fearfully. But my first question would be, do you go to God? Are you going to God? Are you meeting with him personally? Are you meeting him with your family? Are you meeting him with your church? Is that a priority to you? Is that something that you think is important? If you're not meeting with God, my question would be, how is that going? How is your life? Are you enjoying your life? Really? You enjoying your spouse, enjoying your kids, enjoying your friends, enjoying your church? I really doubt you are. I really doubt you are. Because you've cut yourself off if you're not meeting with God. Jeremiah 17 talks about this. You can either be like a tree that's sending out roots to the river, or you can be like a weed just blowing around in the desert. If you're going to God, you're sending your roots out to that river, and you're like a strong oak tree. It doesn't matter how hot the sun is. It doesn't matter how hard the wind is blowing. It doesn't matter how much rain is falling. That tree is steady. It's not going anywhere. But if you are not going to God, you're just like a tumbleweed in the desert. It takes the slightest breeze to move you anywhere it wants to take you. So are you going to God? If you are going to God, the second question, how are you going to God? Is it fearfully? Is it fearfully? Your personal time with the Lord, your family time with the Lord, your church time with the Lord. What's the magnitude of it? How important is it? How much do you think about it? How much preparation? And very practical. What's going on and what's not going on with your mouth? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word today. It's encouraging to be reminded that we cannot have joy apart from you. You've built us for joy, God, for happiness, for satisfaction, for contentment. We all want these things and we're all looking for these things and we're so easily duped, God, and end up looking for it in the wrong places and settling for something that is satisfying for a few minutes or a few days or a few years and we we cut ourselves short, God, so please Use your word and by your Holy Spirit to convict us, to show us the way, to give us the strength and the courage to to change, to do what we're not doing that we need to be doing and to stop doing what we shouldn't be doing. We're thankful, God, for this church, for a place where we can come together with brothers and sisters, to come together with our family and to meet with you. God, is it our, it is our heart's desire to meet with you fearfully. You are our Heavenly Father. And we want to come before you in great reverence. We want to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.